Nick, Kate, thanks for joining us today. We're here for Spicy Takes, our take on the past, present, and future of healthcare. Over the next couple of minutes, we're gonna cover a bunch of topics. Hot questions about what's changing in healthcare, an industry that doesn't feel like it changes that fast. And I think uh, what I'd love to understand is what has changed over the last 10 years? What do we think is changing right now over the next six to 18 months? And if we could pull out our crystal balls for a few minutes, where do we think the industry is gonna be in the next 10 years? Uh, love to hear your guys' perspectives on care delivery, care models, technology and AI, and ultimately how those come together to build a, a more equitable, a more productive healthcare system for all of us as healthcare consumers. Yeah, let's get into Great. it. Yeah. Our first topic is healthcare technology and our first sauce is mayonnaise, everyone's favorite. Two, uh, two favorite healthcare topics brought together. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about the state of technology in healthcare. How's that, how's that mayonnaise for you guys? I like mayo as much as mm. I like EHRs. Yeah. <laughs> I say not very much. No, not very spicy, maybe a little dry. McKinsey mm -hmm. just put out a, a survey, a digital quotient survey where they ranked healthcare third to last in terms of digital transformation, besting only uh, industrials, which is number two in the public sector, which is number one. For anybody who's tried to renew their driver's license online, you know that uh, the public sector has done a great job of technology adoption. Let's look at the past, where we come from, what's changed, and, and why is there so much opportunity to drive digital transformation in healthcare today? You know, as a physician, I think about really one of the biggest changes, and I've talked to other colleagues about this as well, is the adoption of the EHR. And all, all that has brought with it, um, good and bad. Um, I think when I started, I was still on paper charts. I think when we were um, asked to adopt EHRs, I think many of us thought that um, it, was, it, would, it would change our relationships with patients. Mm -hmm. It would be too onerous. Um, and I think that as we, as we did it, we slowly you know, uh, adopted it. I think that there's been many iterations of it. And if you ask one physician, how many HRs have they been on? My guess is an average of three, uh, usually. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the, one of the, you know, where we are today with that, I think physicians, if you would ask them, would they want to go back to paper charts? They would say no. Um, I think that one of the really powerful things about EHRs right now is that it, it enables a physician um, to really have a more 360 view of the patient before you would have to reach out to different um, organizations, get the records that could take two days, and now you've got it at your fingertips, which really obviously makes your job easier to take care of the patient. And then also it's much easier for the patient too, right? You, you know, there's also certainly harm that, that could be caused by actually ordering duplicative tests. Um, and so I think that um, there's a lot of very, very positive things that EHRs have done. I think on the downside, um, you know, one of the things uh, it's contributed to is um, a little bit of burnout uh, for those who are using it. And, you know, uh, upwards of 40% of somebody's day is spent on data entry. Um, and really, that's, that's really not acceptable. Um, and I think, um, you know, as we kind of talk more, I think, you know, we can talk about, you know, what are the options uh, moving forward? to alleviate that. Yeah, but what do you think, Kate, on the, I think, I think part of what we've been contending with over the past 10 years, and I think it's gotten better, is that when we 
adopted EHRs, you know, off the backs of the high tech act and, you know, this huge, this huge boom and EHR proliferation, it was largely like a lift and shift where we took the exact same transactions that were occurring on paper and just digitized them. And in mm -hmm. the process, we missed the opportunity to reimagine what software actually should, should do mm -hmm. uh, at the point of care and how the interaction at the point of care might evolve to be like more patient centered. And I think that's partially why we have this burnout because nothing nothing really about the transactional billing and payment structures within healthcare changed at the same time as the technology did. And so you have this like this data entry, this huge burden of data entry that's of tenuous value but is required for you know current billing structures. So and I don't know, we'll might get in, in this later with Michael, but like is there a chance as we go through payment reform to rethink the EHR around something that's a little bit more human centered than mm -hmm. than transaction centered? I do, I do, and I, and I think when you think back why EHRs were initially created in terms of a way to capture better billing uh, opportunities, um, it was really designed that way. And so I think we have to rethink how it's designed so that it's actually designed uh, as a tool to enhance the uh, patient care that occurs in the exam room. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, we talk about the pace of change in healthcare and how it can feel slow, but in 2011, Nick and I had been on our journey at Arcadia for two years. And at that point, 28% of hospitals had adopted a certified EHR, and today it's like 95%. I mean, that's that's tremendous transformation and change management over what amounts to about a 10-year period. Totally. But I mean, part of that, part of that pace of change is why we made some short-sighted decisions, right? And like in how we roll these out, because you just we push this technology so fast and so broad across thousands of caregivers. Having 95% of hospitals right. and 78% of physicians on EHR. It gives us a platform and the foundation to make change. So why don't we why don't we use that as a, a framing of for the next eighteen months? We're coming out of a pandemic. Digital adoption accelerated greatly during the pandemic for everybody, not just physicians and consumers. But I like to think about my mom, who's a senior citizen, a young senior citizen, if she's watching, and uh, <laughs> love you, mom. And you know, she had her first virtual appointment in. April of 2020, and she was anxious, but now she's all for it. Not leaving your living room to talk to your doctor, especially when you don't need to drive downtown, pay for parking, deal with traffic. It's a great, it's a great quotient. What do you think changes in the next 18 months given that catalyst? And then longer term, how does this foundation kind of pulling on Nick's thread allow us to think about a, a more digital experience for patients, providers, and collaborators that drive better satisfaction? I mean, I think you have to think about it within the context of what's going on in healthcare, right? So you have, you know, virtually most health systems are losing money. I think there's a lot of pressures, you know, there's staffing issues, um, there's burnout. Um, and so I think you have to think about um, advancing digital health technology within that context. Um, and I would say in the short term, there's a real opportunity to, um, you know, there's been a lot of investment by many health systems, health providers actually in technology already. And I think one of the challenges that we have, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this too, is um, we don't optimize the use of what we have, mm -hmm. right? And so there could be much more power in terms of how people, clinicians on the front lines interact with that technology and really maximize what it could do. And so, so it's almost like, let's look at what we have now instead of layering on more and more technology. Yeah, I think that's right. I just, I think um, part of that, part of that interface or abstraction is, is technology, right? And put, put differently, like a lot of the frustration that you voiced uh, driving clinician burnout is this, this uh, the problem of, of data entry 
um, in like managing those transactions in these clinical systems. Uh, and I think this is where I tell you that AIs are, you know, making doctors obsolete and you punch back. Um, but the, uh, I, I think, I think a big, a big part of the solve here is using, um, using AI and automation to create an abstraction layer on top of these systems and enable people to have meaningful conversations with each other and automate that billing and transaction management, uh, underneath. And I think that'll give a lot of clinicians their life back and improve the patient experience considerably. Yeah. There's a significant, um, I think empowerment. Uh, right with patients able to actually look at their own data. And we were just talking about that earlier with some of the team members here. Um, with that, though, comes a uh, much more communication about it, right? Mm. Which is healthy, right? I want to ask questions mm -hmm. about it. But that is that communication is really funneling into the same exact infrastructure that we had 20 years ago, yeah. right? And it, it is not prepared to manage that. And so that's another part of burnout. You know, you've got folks who are actually staying up until 11 o'clock at night trying to answer these, you know, these questions, et cetera. And, and again, I think, you know, the next short term is like, how do we actually fix that? How do we operationally change that, right? And that's, that's you know, really our operational leaders and, and, and structures um, that I think really kind of had to work on that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a real confluence moment. You have physician burnout, a, a physician shortage across both primary care and specialty care. You have a more consumer-focused patient cohort mm -hmm. who are used to using technology. You know, I can, I can go message Amazon about a missed package and I can get a response in real time. I have a question about a drug to my doc. It takes three days to get back. But that's not because my doc doesn't care. It's because they're focused on completing their charting and they don't have the time in their schedule to do that. And Amazon has a lot more money. That's true. That's true. They're not, they're not facing the same budget yeah. pressures of healthcare. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump forward to the patient and the consumer experience. Um, this is a this is a real, a real interesting topic as we think about where healthcare is going. And I I agree with Nick, that I think we need to be thinking about EHRs less as something that physicians are using every day and much more as a back-end transactional system. Mm -hmm. The concept of patients having access to more medical information, I think, broadly is a great idea. I'm curious of your thoughts of how has that changed over the last 10 years. Someone made a quip to me the other day that it used to be that, that patients just would see a commercial for a drug on, on television, and they'd come ask their doctor for it. Now they can see their lab results and ask their doctors about that, which mm -hmm. broadly is probably better than requesting meds. Although I don't think that's stopped. I mean, I think giving them the information um, is, and sometimes they see it before the physicians do or other right. clinicians do. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's a really good thing um, because I think there's an opportunity to get them more engaged in their own care um, and also in the shared decision making, which we know that ultimately, if you do that, then you end up with a better therapeutic relationship and ultimately better outcomes. So I think that um, it's overall a good thing I think where sometimes um, uh, where it could go off, go off a little bit off the tracks is when they may start to look things up on Google yeah. or sources that may not be, you know, um, the, uh, the the place to go. Um, and I think then that can create unnecessary worry about certain lab results or information. So, but wouldn't you so much rather have that that problem, like like. I the fact that the consumer is now educated and activated, I mean, ultimately it's our bodies, yeah. right? Like the idea of firewalling access, who, who can know about, you know, our own anatomy and our own conditions, um, you know, with a, with just a credentialed physician, like, I, I don't know, to me, it creates unnecessary friction in the, uh, in, in, in some way, like disassociates the patient, the patient from their own care. So I, I mm. I'm at least glad that folks are going to Google or GPT yeah. to ask these questions, even if they might be imperfect answers. I think it's, I think it's much more healthier dynamic on that side, personally. 
Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I think, though, when the information is really not validated or, in fact, it's wrong, it's hard to change that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's hard yeah. to change that. And then you sort Have of- there been a pro- Have there been any problems with misinformation in medicine in the past couple of years? Oh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Great. Well, well I, think, I think that's a, a nice segue into going back to one of the promises of the last 10 years of uh, VHR was better data. So let's uh, let's move to our next topic: uh, data and portability data. We're going to turn up the spice a little bit, uh, moving up to, to spice level number two, our ranch sauce. Mm. Um, certainly better than mayo. And uh, in a data audience, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's actually spicy. It's oregano spice, I guess. It's herb. an herb. Herb. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about data. You know, Nick, you've made the last 15 years of your career almost exclusively focused on how do you unlock the power of data, starting with trying to pull the earliest data sets out of EHRs Mm -hmm. and now working with a data set that is among one of the largest in the country in terms of clinical and claims data. How do you see the last 10 years evolving in terms of the data available for decision making? And then, Kate, how do you see your role as a clinician, how has it changed over the last 10 years uh, based on the, the power the data has brought to clinical practice? I, I, was, I was thinking back, one of the, you might remember this, about around 10, 10 years ago, I think, this, the promise of the PHR, right? The, the personal health record that um, mm-hmm. Google and Apple were rolling out with, and this idea that all of a sudden everyone was going to have access, like you would own your own data as a patient, it would be clean, sanitized in a single format, and you would be um, uh, empowered to share that and bring that, you know, uh, uh, wherever you want. And that just never materialized. And I, th- I think it's such, I think it's such a letdown. And I think we've made a l- bunch of leaps in interoperability in healthcare, but largely that interoperability is still locked in, in transactions and not, not, not like a meaningful whole person, whole person record. And so I, I think there's been a lot of strides. I think fire adoption, um, has, has finally taken off and, and, and there are ways to, acquire and centralize data in a fundamentally different way. And so back in our day, uh, in the early waves of this, a big part of our business was just literally reaching our hands in the back end of these really crummy EHR databases and sucking data out mm-hmm. uh, for, for the purposes of analytics. And that's like such wasted energy to some extent, yeah. right? If, if you can just establish a standard on which to transmit data, then we can all focus on insights you know, and activation rather than just, just janitorial data work. And so there's been a lot of strides and I think we'll see more of that. So, so Nick talked a lot about Portability of data. How do we get data out of systems? But it's not just the data. You know, I'm a I'm a healthcare mm-hmm. consumer. I have a primary care physician at one network. I have specialty physicians in other networks. It's important to move that data, but it's about you know you've got a limited amount of time to prep and see and document your interaction with the patient. How have you seen over the last ten years the bringing together of that data make you more effective at being a, a clinical partner to a patient? And how have you seen tooling get better to draw insights from that data? I think where it has gotten better is, um, you know, preventive care is a great example, mm. right? I think that um, often, um, you know, there was, if, if somebody came into the office, you asked them about their mammogram, et cetera, and if they left, that was it, right? But now because of the data that we have and of the data, you know, especially if you've got a platform in analytics, you actually can, can see who is missing Right, all the preventive care, and you can bring them in and, and actually close those gaps. So that's been really important. I think some of the other areas that um, in the last several years 
are you know the ability to risk stratified populations, right, and um, and then design uh, interventions that could best support them to actually improve their their health outcomes. Um, and I think that will be the most powerful thing um, as we think about you know we're moving into value based care you know more and more with CMSing by 2030. Um, and I think the ability to really kind of know where to focus limited resources is completely data-driven. And I think that um, there's a lot of data out there and what we need is the insights from that data to then translate that into clinical practice. This push from CMS to get all patients into value-based arrangements by 2030 is gonna be a big change agent. You, know, you think about the next six to eight months, the next decade, pushes like making care primary. You, know, you have to democratize the adoption of data mm -hmm. and the adoption of not just data, but, but the use of data. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to your comments earlier around consumerism, if you're going to share a lab result with a patient, like it should also come with this is in range or this is out of range. This is what it means. And the decision support to a patient of the next step is someone should be reaching out to you. But if you want more information, like click here or call here. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, data with context, not just not just the torrent of data itself. What about you, Nick? Where do you think we're going in the next 10 years? Well, I mean, I think that that surge in, in value-based payments is going to do a lot for us. I think we've had, you know, there's demonstrated success in the in the ACO model generating some savings, but some somewhat anemic. But the I think I think if we sell out to it as a healthcare industry and start shifting more and more volume there, we're gonna get we're gonna get better at it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I think what we often overlook, or I often overlook retrospectively, is the the idea that not that failures are not a bad thing. So there's a lot of stuff that didn't work in the past 10 years, but that's 10 years worth of experimentation that is now checked off, right? Mm -hmm. And with every failed experiment you learn. And so these things like PHRs and HIEs and um, uh, other investments that we made that didn't quite take off, they're things we don't have to make again and we have learnings from that. And I think you're seeing that with a lot of the experimentation in the past 10 years in ACOs, driving what will be, I think, a, a much more productive decade in the next one. Yeah, I, there was a study recently released that that compared the large language models to physician notes written by physicians. And broadly, consumers found the LLMs to be much more compassionate. And I think we can all agree that physicians are generally a compassionate group. Uh, but there's a reason why that's the case, because you can tell an LLM, write this note with the ability to both submit it to insurance companies for the purposes of billing and payment, and also in a tone and a voice that a, 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 a non-clinical consumer can read it and understand it. And I think that you're able to give that instruction and an LLM doesn't burn out, although it can get mistrained, certainly. Totally. I mean, that idea of, of translation is is so important. I mean, a part, of, part of what a physician has to do is translate really, really complex anatomy and um, in, in biology and chemistry to a patient that's not educated in those. And uh, never mind patients that uh, uh, don't speak their language as, as, as a primary language. And there's there's you know, other, other barriers to that information transmission. And so using these models to more clearly communicate your idea to a broad audience at different reading levels is, I think, incredibly powerful. I would just add, though, these models didn't have to stay up late last night and finish their charts as well as pick up their kids after school. So, exactly. so it's complicated, right? So it's, it's almost comparing apples to oranges in terms of the comparison. But, but it's, it's really interesting, though, mm -hmm. and we can, I, we can learn from something from it. But I think that's actually the point is if we want to thwart burnout, how do we provide enabling tools? I mean, we think and 
all of us have an iPhone or a smartphone in our pocket, and that was a huge productivity unlock. You know, I still remember the days where you'd print out MapQuest maps to get somewhere, and that was a, it was like dangerous. You're like, you got a map on your steering wheel, and then yeah. now you've got something that like sits on your dash, it speaks to you, it tells you like when to turn, and you know, using that one simple example is a great example of productivity unlock. And I think that there's this combination. Yes, it's apples and oranges, but a good fruit salad has both apples and oranges in it. And I think that's the way we need to be designing the system in the future. But Nick tripped across, uh, I think, what's a, it's a great, a great uh, lead-in for our next topic, which is care disparities. And one of the challenges I think physicians have is how different patients are. Everyone has their own unique physiology. Every, every community interacts with the, the, the healthcare system differently. So let's, let's, let's turn up the heat and talk about what's evolved in terms of care disparities. Our next sauce is getting really spicy, everyone. It's honey mustard. Oof. Um, Can so you think, handle it? Uh, let's dive right in. Great. I think one of the best changes in healthcare in the last 10 years has just been bringing to surface an actual above ground discussion on how different communities interact with the healthcare system differently and why that leads to care disparities. And that's so important right now given the advancement in the use of AI because you have entire sections of populations that do not interact with the healthcare system. So we have limited data on those populations. And as we roll out AI and ML and LLM models, having awareness of the differences in the way that groups interact with the healthcare system helps us understand where those models are great and have big blind spots. It's probably not a surprise you, Kaiser uh, Foundation came out and said that one in five black adults, one in five Hispanic adults report being treated unfairly by the healthcare system. And that leads to pulling back. There's a lot of work that's been ongoing. You know, we're in, we're in Boston today. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts launched a really unique health equity program uh, probably about 18 months ago where every healthcare system is, is evaluated on the way that individual cohorts of patients, Black, Hispanic, uh, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, perform, and health systems are required to elevate the outcomes of each of those groups together. You don't get rewarded if you just improve outcomes for Black patients. You have to improve all of them at the same time. What have you seen change in the way we think about health disparities, health equity, um, and where do you think we're going? Yeah, I mean, from from one of the first things that we ever did at this company was gather data for the measurement of health disparities because there were programs that were funded by the CMS and, and Medicaid programs to do that. And that was like, honestly, some of the earliest steps in, in population health were, were, were funded on the backs of those. And I think what is good and bad is that to your point, we're talking about it more than ever, but they're not necessarily improving. Uh, and so I think the the hope in the next 10 years is that we can use this information um, and the elevated conversation to actually drive the kind of outcomes and, and that, you know, we'll just have to see. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think um, the a lack of insight in terms of the disparities um, was a huge challenge. Um, I think, uh, you know, with the pandemic that exposed much and I think that then enabled institutions and actually was a mandate to invest more in data. How do we capture Number one, some of these, you know, ethnicities, races. So we actually even know, you know, and can measure. Um, I think what I've seen is that, you know, a little bit of baby steps. I think mm. it's a pretty overwhelming task for um, for health systems, for providers, for individual practices in terms of how do I address this? Um, you know, one of the first things some folks are doing is, is screening for social risks, mm. um, which is which is a start. 
Um, I think, you know, one of the challenges with that is that, you know, when you screen for social risk and, and you end up with somebody who, you know, has inadequate housing, you know, do you have an intervention for that? And I think this is where, um, you know, in the next 10 years, hopefully next five years, is where we really need to collaborate with, you know, community organizations, um, the government, city governments, um, and health systems to really come together with solutions. Uh, it, it's complicated. Um, it's really a society issue more than a healthcare, but they, but it overlaps, right? It causes poorer health. Um, I think another part of that is, uh, you know, behavioral health and, and uh, uh, addiction is a big part of uh, those disparities as well, is, is prevalent more so in uh, certain populations. And I think uh, we don't yet have solutions for those. Um, and I think, again, that is part of just as those social risks exist, like, you know, um, inadequate housing, food insecurity, so does uh, a lack of intervention around behavioral health and addiction. I couldn't agree more. And I think that this is such a great platform for digital health as mm -hmm. we start yeah. to think about how do you democratize access? Because, you know, if a, if a patient is concerned they're not going to get the right treatment because of the color of their skin or the community they live in, the smartphone is a great equalizer. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you go in and we talk about what's changed for the last 10, 10 years. Like that to me is the biggest thing. The fact that you can pull out your phone and get connected with a doctor in 15 minutes. I, I, I fully agree with you, but it doesn't sound like you do. <laughs> I was generally but. disagreeing. Uh, this is a but there. I, just to, to your point, like all the technology and all of the access to healthcare in the world doesn't change the fact that the single worst diagnosis you can have as a patient is being poor. And like you can't address that with the healthcare institutions, mm -hmm. right? Like we can measure that yeah, poor society. people have, have yeah. lower, lower outcomes, but like ultimately we need to fund and attack the problem of homelessness and poverty uh, because. Yeah, you know, you, yeah, you just can't solve that in a clinic mm -hmm. um, yeah. or with a smartphone. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's it is truly a, a multidisciplinary solve. It's a societal problem, but but I think to the to the areas that healthcare can impact, making more modalities to access care, not just in person but digitally. I, I agree, and I, I, I don't I don't mean to be like defeatist, you know, in saying that because all big problems can be broken down into component parts, and I, I think we need to do our part as a as a healthcare. Um, uh, uh, as a healthcare industry to solve what we can. Yeah, I mean, I think I just uh, I think you're right about digital tools. I think that is definitely um, a way to help engage some of these populations. Um, you know, one of uh, a partnership that we had was with uh, in North Philadelphia. Um, they were looking to engage Medicaid populations to bring bring them in for preventive care, um, and it was hard to reach them on the phone, but they texted. Yeah. And they had an 80% response rate, mm. which was excellent. You don't, you just don't get an 80% response rate when you call patients. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's not complicated either. It's here, we have it now. And I think it's just leveraging things like that, what we have now to do that. When we were first conceptualizing this idea of having this, this talk show, Kate, you and I were talking about what's changed over the last 10 years. And it kind of started with all these organizations like Oak Street Health mm -hmm. and One Medical that didn't exist. And they've yeah. really changed the paradigm of how you access care. And I think that that's, to me, that's one of the things that's changed the most. Now there are replicas of Oak Street and um, One Medical and Iora and all these different kind of dock in a box. You've got Village who has a strategy, Walmart. We're trying to bring healthcare closer and into communities. And 10 years ago, that just wasn't that wasn't the way we were thinking. And I think that that's a real opportunity to bring 
care closer to some of these communities and, and democratize access. When you think about many of those models, they are focused on Medicare models. Right. And so they are leaving out you know, the uninsured Medicaid populations. I mean, there are some actually uh, models, City Block, for example, yeah. Medicaid focus. Um, but, but it's really primary care segmentation is what we're seeing. And it's usually segmentation by payer. Um, and, you know, it's not a comprehensive view. So I, I think that story, we'll see how that evolves. Um, because I think at the end of the day, we need sort of more comprehensive care for all patients. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but I couldn't agree more. Let's let's turn up the heat a bit. Our next sauce, level four, is a jalapeno aioli, so a little spicier. Mm. But as we as we dive into that, you, you're talking about primary care segmentation. You're talking about uh, these models being focused on Medicare, and that really gets down to healthcare economics. Mm -hmm. And yeah. one thing that has not changed in the last ten years is that healthcare is still really expensive. Healthcare is now healthcare expense is one of the leading causes of personal bankruptcy, and I think if I have to pull up my crystal ball, that's that's the dam that has to break in the next ten years. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a barrier to healthcare disparities. It's a barrier to personal finance. It, it threatens the national budgets. They, we talk all the time about the Medicare trust going broke. So mm -hmm. as we uh, as we turn up the heat, I'd love to I'd love to hear kind of your perspective for the last decade of how have we changed the way we talk about healthcare finance and healthcare economics, and how have we tried to bend that cost curve. A couple of reactions. So, so the past the past ten years, we've been like I said, experimenting, right? And we've had like some some gains in how to how to attack costs in small pockets, but like globally, costs costs are are you know continue to continue to skyrocket really. And there's there's a number of different contributors that are that are like hard to figure out and get get ahead of because ten years ago we didn't have the same explosive skyrocketing drug costs that we have today, right? So you have this around the corner. As soon as you're hedging, you know, costs in skilled nursing facilities, you've got explosive costs going elsewhere, and and it's a it's a complicated picture, and I, I think what I've seen is we're developing a lot of technology that can reduce costs, but ultimately, like policy and people need to change in order to activate that. So if we're still gonna, if we're still gonna render care in the high cost settings that we're rendering them, uh, then it's still gonna cost a lot. And until we get more comfortable potentially with offloading some physician tasks mm -hmm. and, and other work to um, to automated systems, the cost of labor will still be up, and the, and the total cost of the system will be up. So I think it, you know, we need to match the technology with potentially getting a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more free with our with with our regulations and staffing models to, to to meet patients where they're at at a lower cost. I will challenge that though. I mean, if you go back to the '90s, we had statin drugs. That was a huge crisis. You know, everyone was going to statin, no, and it was going to bankrupt the entire country. And you know, how are we going to? How are we going to tackle that? It's the same thing that's happening now with the yep. the um, the obesity drugs. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 No, it's true. It's true. It's not. It's maybe not novel. It's it's um, there are some jaw dropping drugs out there though now that I think we haven't figured out what the what the like burden on state Medicaid's are going to be. Yeah, I mean there was an article about how all of the Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk are lobbying Congress to get all these GLP drugs on the Medicare fee schedule. Right. And you have this, you have this big push pull of, you know, you've, you've pharma, which is multinational and for profit. And you've got Medicare, which is a government and you have a drug that could dramatically improve the quality of life for consumers. And the real question is how do we pay for it? Yeah. Right. And commercial and others aren't paying for it. Right. So here's another, you know, creating disparities, health disparities, right? Because Absolutely. of access, lack of access. In the article, they talked about how one of the biggest problems with these drugs is Americans are flying to Mexico to buy them in Mexico. Mm. And that's depriving Mexicans who really need the drugs, who have diabetes or are overweight, 
and they can't get them because we're coming and cash paying. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so not only do we have health healthcare disparities in our own communities, we're then, you know, trampling across borders and creating healthcare disparities in, in other countries that have a much worse healthcare system than we do. Where do you think this goes? I mean, it, you know, Nick, you, you pull on the regulation thread that we need different regulation. Ken, I'm curious, from your perspective as a care provider, how have you seen the way that the, the practice of care is evolving to, to be more aware of cost of care, or has it? I, I think it's it's complicated. Um, I think that... You think? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, it, it's challenging, right? Because I think that on one... You know, as a as a you know as as somebody who's been a leader in, in value based care at a, a large health health system, there's a little bit of you know talking out both sides of your mouth, mm. right? Um, and not to try and be you know um, deceptive, but it, it's reality, right? Because I think you you want to you want to cut cost, you want to improve quality, but at the same time, when you're looking at you know a hundred million dollar loss for the year, you have to think about um, how do I actually cut costs too, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I actually cut, maybe I have to cut staff or maybe I have to, you know, not purchase or invest in that technology or that digital health tool, right? So it becomes, I think that unfortunately our front lines are sort of stuck in the middle. They hear conflicting messages. And I think that's also con- contributed to our burnout as well. I I, I just, I was, I was thinking, reflecting on your, your comment on, on you know, focusing on value and, you know, leading, leading organizations in the, in the transition of value. And I I think it's, it's it's kind of an important point. Like, the costs themselves are not the enemy. It's the combination of the costs and the outcomes that we're getting for those costs to some extent. Like, it's not necessarily awful that a huge portion of our GDP is spent caring for one another, right? Like, that's not a terrible societal uh, investment. I think the problem is that we get relatively poor outcomes for it for for that for that spend. And I uh, I don't know that there's a comment to that beyond that, but like yeah. focusing more on, on, on the, on the output versus the cost. I think we, we sometimes get overly obsessive with just trying to reduce, reduce, reduce costs as opposed to get, get a, getting a better return for that investment. Well, I think that comes back to your conversation on policy. If you compare our, our healthcare costs, to other developed nations, structurally, we're very different. You know, we, our federal government can't negotiate. Well, now they can ne- negotiate drug prices, but that'll go to the Supreme court and we'll see if that sticks. There is policy implications that could help lift outcomes relative to cost. Mm-hmm. That's right. Kate, you and I were talking about one of the other changes you observe. I'd love, I'd love for you to share just around how over the last decade, it's become easier to deliver certain services. I think you and I were talking about CTs. And I think that there's, there's, uh, there's a push-pull there because the easier it is to administer a service, the more you use it. Sure. You know, I think yeah. about Uber. You know, it used to be that they only had black cars in Uber. It's expensive. And then over time, you know, now you can get, you have know, a whole menu of services. and People use Uber all the time for short and long trips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think back to when I was, you know, first out of residency in a community hospital in Philadelphia. And to get a CT scan, sometimes you'd have to wait three, three days to get the study for a patient who was in the hospital because... Um, it just, you know, that's the only CT scan that they mm-hmm. had. Um, and fast forward 20 years, I mean, you walk into the ED and you get a C, C scan, um, and that's no knock on the ED docs. But it's accessible, right, because technology is a little bit cheaper. Um, and I think then, you're right, if it's more available, does that drive overuse mm-hmm. of those resources? Um, so there's a there's a positive and negative there. And I think that, there you know, there are a lot of... Um, physician groups and others who are really focused on high value care and using the resources appropriately. Let's go to the next topic, everyone's favorite topic, generative AI. 
Uh, so our next sauce is a sriracha ketchup. So a little, a little spicier. All right, that's the first good one. Mm. There's been a lot of promise of AI over the last 10 years. There have been some spectacular startups that have uh, become, uh, what do they call it? A burnt out sun, like a glowing giant or a supernova. Where are we going? Where are we today, Nick, with AI? And where, where do you see us going in the next, in the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, we're at the point where these large language models are incredibly powerful in ways that I don't think anybody really understood, you know, two years ago, even a year ago, um, or at least most lay people didn't understand. And they're able to perform tasks um, with a level of like sophistication, accuracy and empathy well beyond what, you know, um, what we thought. And I think that has huge implications on the healthcare industry, particularly because the health, like, like part of what these models did is they inverted this notion of automation killing um, what we call low skill labor, right? And they're really going after the information economy, right? So information workers, um, which the healthcare is rich in, including uh, yourself as a physician. And uh, I, I think we're very close. I think we're still at the point where it makes enough errors that people like pointing out that it's not perfect, but I think that is naive to the speed with which they'll improve. I think the huge unknown falls back a little bit to regulation uh, and you know the, the, all of the legal complexity behind using these systems that are trained on a, on a plethora of data that is, I think in some cases pretty opaque and in a lot of cases pretty sketchy. Yeah, I mean, I think about, you know, if Netflix picks a movie for me that was just off, you know, not what I would like, it's okay, right? But if, but if you know, the, the AI in my EHR picks a medication for me that is off, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit different. Well, it's interesting. Bain put out a study this year that said three and four C-suite executives say that AI is going to reshape the healthcare industry. Um, but fewer than 6% of organizations have a plan to harness it. And I think it's because of this exact problem is how do you start? And I think that if you read the flashy case studies, it's, oh, you know, I've got a bot that listens to a patient and physician uh, uh, exam and it starts the node and it, does, it provides decision support. But I actually think the real transformative power of AI is on a bunch of the minutia mm. that happens in healthcare. You think about even with interoperability, there's still a chart request that has to go out in certain cases or the work that we do, you still have to clean up a bunch of data that's coming in. That takes time, it takes effort, and it's not fun. Mm -hmm. It's not work that anybody gets up every day and says, gosh, I can't wait to go clean up these ICD-10 codes. Um, I think that you know, my personal view is over the next 10 years, you're gonna start to see a lot of the repetitive mundane parts of healthcare delivery that, that don't impact patient care really being automated and lifting the skill of a lot of healthcare workers. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I don't know the data on how much of our cost is is you know run by sort of routine PCP visits, but I get annoyed every time that I have to schedule an appointment with someone that only books six months out, and all they do is take my blood pressure, take my weight, maybe read some lab results, and tell me I'm okay. And I just it seems like such a misuse of that person's time when they could be spent with people with higher complexity and higher needs, and that just seems ripe for automation. So. So I do think AI is actually being used now on the back end, right? And so revenue cycle management, mm -hmm. prior offs, and I think payers and providers are actually, you know, when you do that, then you actually can, those, those people who are doing that manually, then you can pull them out, right? And redeploy those resources maybe into patient care. So while that's not directly uh, impacting patient care, it is indirectly by freeing up resources to do that. I appreciate that. And I think it actually, I think it's a great point, this concept of prior auths and automating prior auths, it needs to happen. 
because it's a huge time sink for physicians and their extenders. It's a huge satisfaction killer for patients. Mm. Yeah. Now, I, I did a prior auth a couple months ago, and it was, I mean, I'm not kidding, it was like paper forms back and forth. My physician was frustrated with, I was frustrated because I wanted to, I wanted to get the prior auth approved, and I knew it would. It was in the benefit plan, and it took three weeks of back and forth, and that could all be eliminated. That's another area, the benefit plans. We talked about like improving access and mm -hmm. we keep talking about access to physicians or scheduling or all of that. I think where patient experience is still lagging is understanding their benefits and understanding mm -hmm. the networks yeah, that yeah. they exist in. And Very these much. are really, really complex stacks of documents. And uh, I've, I've used these models recently to just read the whole EOB and just tell me, simulate a year for me, mm -hmm. right? Like what am I covered for? What am I not covered for? If I see this provider, am I not? And um, these AI models are actually really, really good at summarizing that content and make it readable to somebody like me that doesn't necessarily, and I work in this industry, that really doesn't understand the, you know, the, the stack of papers in the EOB. And I think we have to take the fear out of AI too. Totally. Like there's a lot of fear. We put our lives in the hands of AI all the time. Every time you get on a plane, that plane is being flown by AI. And that's not new, that's happened forever. You know, a lot of us use AI in our daily lives for a lot of things. And you know, you, Kate, you made the point around the med that's why I think physicians don't go away. But if you don't have to hunt and peck for the right med, if you could, if you could have a list of suggestions served exactly. up, and then you use your, your 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 training to say these three are wrong, but this one's right, and it saves you five minutes. Like, isn't that isn't that a yeah. net benefit? Yeah, clinical clinical decision support, which is you know there is some of that now, mm -hmm. and I think it's just it's not really refined, and I think there's a lot more room to uh, you know evolve that. Um, okay. I think right. All right, well, speaking of AI and airplanes, let's land this plane. Last sauce, it's a hot sauce, our first actual hot sauce. All right. And I think let's let's land the plane on, you know, a bonus round. Where are we going in the next 10 years? Pull out your crystal ball. Technology, care delivery, care models. Where are we going? So let's uh, let's see what this sauce has in store for us. Yeah, oh, spicier. Mm -hmm. I did a big one. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Got some vinegar in it. Yeah. It does. Yeah. All right. So for me personally, like I think the EMR is going away. Like I think the I think over the next ten years, I think physicians will not interact with those for more than a few minutes a day. They're going to become a transactional backend, and there's a new front end of care. Whether it's a voice assistant, whether it's some other form of robot, like I just think that the the EMR reign is is basically over, and they become a transactional system behind the scenes. And we're going to be much more focused on user experience in the way that technology is assisting physicians and, and their care team members. And that's going to have cascading downstream effects for patient experience, digital access to records, better insights for everyone around the care continuum. Preach. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> oh, I would love it. Um, for... I mean, I think a bunch is going to change, but I think what I'm most excited about is something we, we hit on a little bit earlier. I think the decentralization of healthcare will continue and accelerate significantly. So instead of us being anchoring everything in and around the four walls of a hospital or um, uh, uh, a facility like that, things getting much closer to the patient, a lot more home care, a lot more remote monitoring, actually you know, getting, the, getting, the, getting wearables to a point that they're actually productive for our health and not just glorified pedometers. I think we're going to get to get to that point and that's going to, that, that has the potential to solve some of these equity and access access problems as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that, so we'll have to think of something different. Oh, no. sorry. So I do, I do think that care is moving out patient, mm -hmm. and you're seeing it now in some of the policy making. You're seeing payers who actually, you know, are, you know, let's 
observation versus inpatient um, and moving, you know, moving certain in their network, you know, including um, ASCs. Um, I think that as part of that, though, um, you know, the technology has to catch up with that. And as you said, right, there's already already a big push to do, quote unquote, hospital in the home. Mm -hmm. And I worked on that. Um, at the, the system I used to work at, one of the big challenges was scaling it because mm. we didn't have the right technology to do it. Um, it was way too expensive to have you know somebody going in, um, and so I think that you know that will be a really important piece yeah. of that. And I do I do think we've got the you know we've got the makings of it. I think one of the challenges though is you've got all of these disparate systems that kind of need to come together right and to sort of have a fabric that that connects them all so that mm. at that patient home it is seamless right it shouldn't be like five different things that i've got to connect into that'll be really, really important to make those care models work and then i think if you if you can get rid of the hr and it's in the background and you actually give me more time for that encounter to be between the physician the np the pa whomever it is the nurse and the patient i think then you bring back sort of what folks went into medicine for. Yeah. Right? And I think you you increase, you know, satisfaction not only for clini clinicians but importantly for patients as well. Well, those are great observations. I choose to be optimistic. Me I too. think I think over the next Likewise. decade if we see the amount of change we've seen over the last 10 years, we're going to continue to improve the healthcare system for everyone, for ourselves as both technology providers, as care providers, I think as patients it'll get better. And I think you're going to start to see a collapsing of payment models, which will make everyone's lives easier. It certainly makes our lives easier from an analytics perspective. It'll make your life easier as a provider. And it should really democratize the way that we provide access to care. I really appreciate you guys joining us today. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's I, great. I know we started with Mayo, but I actually think what we found is that there's been a lot more change than I think people give the healthcare system credit for right. over the last decade. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. you're here. You're here. Well, cheers. Uh, cheers to everyone. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Ooh, that sriracha's not bad. No, sriracha's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a bigger bite. I'm gonna have to mm -hmm. bring that one home. <laughs>